Welcome to Obehave, the behavioral science podcast from Ogilvy Consulting. But you can take something, not change the objective thing at all, and by giving it a different context or a different frame, you can make it an entirely different thing in terms of the emotional effect and therefore the resulting behavior. Hello, Nudgers. It's Yulia. And I'm David. And we are a part of the Ogilvy Consulting team and your hosts. And today we are going to have another trip back to our Nudge Talk 2021 and here talk about an industry that has been dominated by an engineering mindset, treating people more like cargo rather than humans. So today's talk is about the transportation system. David, do you want to introduce our guest? Absolutely. So today we're hearing from Pete Dyson, who is the Principal Behavioural Scientist at the Department for Transport. He and Rory Sutherland have published their book, Four Years in the Making, called Transport for Humans. In this book, they make the point that transport is not designed for humans. It has been designed for an imaginary species called Homo transporticus, perfectly rational, knows the timetable, and always chooses the best option, average in every way. But of course, this person is not real. Sounds like it's going to be an interesting talk. Are we ready to depart? Yeah, let's go. Thank you. Today I'm in here in a personal capacity, not representing uh, the department, but I am delighted that today can be the world premiere of a book that Rory and I have been writing for the past four years. And yes, I do think if Rory and I had told you about this any sooner, then you'd probably have been asking, aren't you nearly there yet? But with publication now set for November, I'm really excited that in the next seven minutes, uh, this can be our trailer for Transport for Humans. So let's get going. Now, people who travel go by many names. Passengers, commuters, customers, drivers, cyclists, pedestrians. But ultimately, they're all homo sapiens. And our homo sapien ancestors never worried about getting stuck in traffic missing a flight. Crammed into the past 250 years are all the transport technologies and those uh, communications technologies that we're now taking for granted. So we say, since we're using a Stone Age brain in a high-speed world, transport systems should really be built to adapt to us, not the other way around. So now for good reason, to make transport go, We've got engineers building our roads, our rails, and our, infra and our infrastructure. But the ways an engineer measures success are not really the ways that a passenger thinks about a good trip. I'm optimistic that behavioral science can be the one to plot a new route to show how our travel choices really roam. They're influenced by habit, by status, comfort, connectivity, all the things that have sat historically outside the economic and engineering equations that have been shaping our world. And there's hope. We do already design uh, the engineering for our physical bodies. So a steering wheel currently accommodates the shape of your hands. It takes advantage of your opposable thumbs uh, that, of course, never evolved to steer cars. We're not yet so good. We're not quite there yet with designing the way we live to accommodate our brain's characteristics. We're enduring signage, tickets and instructions that are often designed to suit the brains transport planners wish that we had. But transformation is happening. Now is a really big moment. Climate change, the coronavirus pandemic, 
and the shifting work-life priorities are shaking up those long-held assumptions. Transport's fast becoming a cooperation game. These are priorities that we're tackling to tackle transmission and emissions, and they're really rubbing up against personal preference and how society is geared up. Unfortunately, we've all been forced to find out which journeys have been essential, which were replaceable, and which were substitutable. Now, we say transport isn't doomed. It simply has an adaptation problem. We pose the question, can the infrastructure keep up and keep pace with the humans? With more journeys competing for transport or for non-transport alternatives, we think the main game in town now is quality of transport rather than quantity of transport. Now, I'm passionate that the potential of behavioural science is bigger than we're possibly comprehending. So take congestion and overcrowding as an example. Now, thinking bigger than nudging, but thinking of nudging right now, we could make quiet services more salient and we can give real-time information so people retime their trip. And that's wonderful and we hope that it happens. But the best behavioural science will work with destinations all those places with the specified start times, the book slots, the appointments you can't move. These are the things that cause the peak times and the stresses that we feel in the first place. The latest behavioral science is in fact already giving and revealing ideas for improvements that travelers either haven't been telling us or can't tell us. So I've been really struck in the work that I've been doing that research has actually found that journey times feel shorter and faster in cleaner and quieter train carriages than they do on busy and dirty ones. I'm also struck to have learned about the return trip effect, uh, which is showing how the way back on average feels about 17% quicker than the way out, which varies from place to place. And our challenge is to understand how this differs. So Rory and I see that systemic change is needed. That's why the entire second half of our book actually examines the collective biases that are experienced by transport designers. This means we're ultimately going to need to challenge the use of aggregated data that looks at populations and not people. All that stuff about ergodicity that you might have heard earlier in Nudgestock. It means improving diversity in decision making to combat groupthink. It also means readjusting investment to account for our optimism biases. So, where next? Now we gaze into a not so distant future where we're hopeful that transport operators, government organisations, innovators and entrepreneurs use behavioural science in all manner of operations. That's going to mean hiring behavioural science, um, hiring behavioural scientists. But it's also going to mean rethinking fundamentally what goes into models. What metrics do we track and how do we value things? It's going to need to ultimately make the case for quality over quantity of travel. So we pose the question, are we nearly there yet? I've seen great progress that behavioral science is being used very well to diagnose human issues and bringing them to the fore is brilliant. But we're not really there yet when it comes to applying behavioural science creatively and imaginatively to test much more frequently and in field and in the real world 
to find out what works and what doesn't. Ultimately, to change transport so it serves the people that it moves. So I'll leave you now and pose a question that I hope Rory can answer as I hand back to him. Uh, what came first, putting a person on the moon or putting wheels on a suitcase? Over to you, Rory. Right. My goodness. Um, actually, I do know the answer to the question. And bizarrely, we did put a man on the moon before we really put wheels on a suitcase. Um, now, it's an interesting one because it's not quite true because, of course, you had porters originally who had these strange little trolley devices and they'd put your suitcase on a trolley and then push it on wheels. But the idea of attaching the wheels to the suitcase did actually post-date the Apollo missions, which is kind of weird. Uh, there's an interesting aspect to that, by the way, which is psychological. Now, the guy called Sylvan Goldman, who invented the shopping trolley, uh, put two wheeled chairs together, put a basket in the middle and put them out in his shop because he was convinced people would buy more from his shop if you had a trolley rather than a heavy basket. Nobody used them. And what he realised, it was, it was embarrassing to use one. It almost looked as if you weren't up to carrying a basket. In the same way, I think, that wheeled suitcases looked embarrassing. Now, Goldman solved the problem by just paying actors to wander around his stores, pushing trolleys and stuffing them full of stuff, at which point it became a social norm. And I think what happened, actually, with that fascinating wheeled company, I can never remember what it was called, the Pioneer, you'll remember it, um, they sold it to pilots. And so the only people you saw going through a suit going through an airport with wheeled suitcases were pilots. Now, since they're the coolest people at the airport, that basically removed any social stigma from wheeled luggage. But um, I'm so grateful for this work and so glad, although I hate to lose you as a great employee, I'm really delighted to see you pop up at the Department for Transport because there's so much we're getting wrong by using metrics which are entirely aligned to engineering objectives, not to passenger objectives. And I had a fantastic insight into this last night because I, I asked my algorithm to find me the best train home. And it took me on a journey. That, it recommended a journey that took two changes. Now, I very quickly discovered there was a similar journey that, that only involved one change that took two minutes longer. But as far as the algorithm was concerned, speed was the only factor that I was concerned about, not plonking my ass on a seat and actually staying there, which is, to be honest, what I really look forward to in a train journey. So that disparity between what people care about and what engineers measure strikes me as an enormous area for exploration. So um, this book, more, much more Pete than me, I'm going to be honest about this, uh, because, but it's utterly fantastic and you're going to have to uh, uh, buy that in November. Thank you, Pete, enormously. Thank you, thank you. It's a pleasure. Hello again. Hope you enjoyed this talk as much as we did. At the time of this presentation, this book was actually still in the making, but fortunately for you, it's now fresh off the press and available to order. Look for Transport for Humans. Are we nearly there yet? David, what does resonate with you about this topic? I think for me, it almost comes from a place of frustration and actually optimism in that it, it kind of hands back a bit of the power towards the consumers and it allows us to speak up about things that were previously seen as a bit trivial. So I was literally on a super packed train the other day, couldn't get a seat, like no distancing either. Uh, and I realised that I was standing up and I can't even see out the window and I'm right by the door. And I'm pretty sure that my journey, even without a seat, would be 10% better if I could see out the window. And it was also at the height where 
you know, it was up to my chest, but it was also at the height that a, a toddler wouldn't be able to see out the window either. You know, their journey would also be 10% improved. Oh, that's so true. And I think there is so much more that could be done there. I remember when I just moved to St. Petersburg from my home city and got my car, I wanted not just to get from point A to point B, but to discover the city, drive through beautiful places every time. And I remember desiring a button on my navigator not to get the fastest itinerary, but the most beautiful or the most historical one. And maybe after this book, something like this is going to be possible. What a lovely thought to end this podcast. And I I truly believe that with people like Pete Dyson and Rory Sutherland working on problems like this, we will actually end up with a transport system that is designed for humans. And so that's it today. If you missed Nudgedoc or can't get enough, head over to Ogilvy Consulting on YouTube or follow us on Twitter at Ogilvy Consult UK. And until next time, goodbye nudges.